It's a beautiful phrase uh, that we have just sung uh, that ties into the sermon that we're going to hear from 2 Timothy as we continue our series through that letter. But here we sang, here in the death of Christ, I live. What an interesting thing to sing. What an interesting thing to believe. But that is the power of the gospel, that in the death of Christ, we indeed live. And as we've been looking at, Paul is soon to himself to die. He knows that God will receive him into the heavenly eternal kingdom, as he says at the very end of the letter. But he also has great concern for the church and especially his dear child in the faith, Timothy. Timothy was a pastor or an elder at Ephesus. And Paul realizes that when he's gone, Timothy is going to face opponents. And Timothy is going to face many hardships for the sake of the gospel. And rather than telling Timothy to run from these, he instead points him to the power of God that is found in Christ Jesus, raised from the dead, and says to him, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. In a sense, he's saying, Timothy, live in the death of Christ as you bring honor to him, as you proclaim his gospel. And that's the message that we are hearing to our own ears and 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 an exhortation that comes to each of us, brothers and sisters, in the death of Christ, live. And we'll see that come out in 2 Timothy. And so we're going to consider 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 15 through chapter 2, verse 7. So 2 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul writes to Timothy, You are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me. Now just note that Asia here is referring to um, a province in the Roman Empire, which would today be modern western Turkey. So not the entirety of the continent of Asia, um, but uh, this province in the Roman Empire. So you are aware that all who are in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child... Be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules." It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. So far from God's holy word, let's pray that he might bless this word to us. Father, we ask that you would give us ears to hear, eyes to see. We ask, Father, that your word would penetrate deeply within us into our hearts, transforming us and changing us, and causing us then to live, even as Timothy was exhorted, that we too might live as good soldiers of Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. Dear congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, as I walk through my neighborhood in Brooklyn, uh, there is a Catholic church there. And as I walk past this church, they have a banner up uh, with a QR code underneath it. And over it is this question. 
is Catholicism right for you? And that question struck me because it reflects the modern sentiment that what is true and what is worth living for and what is worth giving myself to is a matter of preference, right? What's true for you may not be true for somebody else. The truth is how you feel. And the truth is your own perspective on things. Is Catholicism right for you? Not is Catholicism right, but is Catholicism right for you? And the answer to both of those is no. But the real thing to think about is the the idea that we in the church have been entrusted with a message that is right and true. Not a matter of preference, right? Not a matter of, well, is it right for you? Is it right for somebody else? Maybe it's good for you and it works for you, but it doesn't work. No, the message that Paul is leaving Timothy to leave them to the church is a message that is right, period. Now, in our day, that sounds proud, right? Because it says, well, then you claim to know the truth. And indeed, it would be proud if this was a message that I contrived or somebody here contrived or some man contrived, but God has spoken, And we humble ourselves before his word, which is right. And when we have that perspective, that mindset of what the church possesses in the gospel that is right and true, period, it's that that then empowers us to live faithfully as his people. Because once you lose that, which the church did over time, the church then loses loses its identity in a sea of social causes. And it no longer exists as a harbor, as a haven for rest in a weary world. It no longer has a message that is worth believing and worth living for and gives true comfort. But indeed, as Paul reminds Timothy, the church has been entrusted with the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news from heaven itself that Christ is risen. And that, as a matter of fact, is what the church possesses. And not only the resurrection as an isolated event, but the resurrection as it changes everything. As it has begun a new creation. And as the church believes that message, they come into communion and fellowship with a living Savior. I've been moved by Machen recently, thinking about this point. J. Gresham Machen Um, We've been going through his book, Christianity and Liberalism, and he brings up this point. He says, you know, when Jesus died in those three days between his death and his resurrection, the disciples were themselves downcast and in despair. And it wasn't a mere memory of Jesus, right? This great person who lived. He said a a few great things. It wasn't a memory of Jesus that transformed them from cowards hiding away because thinking they're up next to be put to death. But what ultimately transformed them from cowards to now boldly preaching Christ throughout the cities of the Roman Empire was not a mere memory of Jesus. It was the fact, the actual event that Jesus rose from the dead. It wasn't a memory, but the message that he is risen that transformed them. Because in that message, they came to have union and fellowship with a living Savior. And so too, the gospel of Jesus Christ is right and true. And as we believe that message, we too are brought into union with Jesus Christ to live for him and to look forward to glory with him. It it changes us in every respect. 
our values change? Will we prioritize change? Because now they are set upon Christ who is in heaven, who is bringing a kingdom unlike any kingdom of this world. And the church then is a haven of rest in a weary world as heaven itself touches down here among his people. As the rest that Jesus Christ offers to the world is found here as we hold fast to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so in the time that we have, I want to think over four points related to possessing the gospel as an objective, right, true thing. A message that cannot be altered. Four things I want us to think about. First, the touchstone of the gospel. Secondly, the toughness of the gospel. For, uh, thirdly, the transfer of the gospel. And then fourthly, the telos of the gospel. I need another T, as of you as all know. And uh, T, telos simply means the end, right? The goal, uh, which something is moving towards. Uh, so the touchstone, the toughness, the transfer, and the telos of the gospel. So first, the touchstone. Paul begins in verse 15, really through the end of chapter 1, to give two examples, negative and positive, of responses to Paul's chain. Right? He speaks of Phygelus and Hermogenes. Right? He says in verse 15, You are all aware, you are aware that all who are in Asia, the Roman province, turned away from me, among whom are Phygelus and Hermogenes, right? So these two, among others, turned away from Paul, right? That language is important. In contrast, as a positive contrast, you have Onesiphorus, right? Whereas Phygelus and Hermogenes turned away from Paul, Onesiphorus, it says, when he arrived in Rome, searched for me and earnestly found me, right? You can see the, 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 the opposite directions, right? Away from Paul, searching for Paul. And what we see here is a kind of touchstone of the gospel. And that these men are judged according to their actions and their attitudes towards Paul. Now you might say that's kind of odd, right? Why is Paul the one that works as a kind of touchstone to measure these, these three men? A touchstone, if you didn't know, was a piece of stone in which um, precious metals would be struck against it to see if they truly were what they were claiming to be, if it really was silver, if it really was gold. A touchstone tested something. And Paul becomes this kind of touchstone where the lives of Phagellus, Hermogenes, and Onesiphorus, maybe possible baby names, I don't know, <laughs> they're, they're rubbed against Paul, right, and to see what kind of life they really have. It's a touchstone in Paul himself. But the reason, you might ask, well, why Paul? What of Paul? It wasn't simply that Paul was a great guy. He, might, you know, he probably was. But Paul here is a touchstone because, one, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus as he opens up this letter. As an apostle, he came to them with the message of Christ. Right? He was a herald. He was a messenger of Jesus Christ with good news, the gospel that is right and true. But more than that, right, because Paul proclaimed this message and many misunderstood it thinking, well, then we must prosper now. The kingdom must be here now. And then suffering came and people scattered and ran. See, the message that Paul brought, well, not merely just as an apostle, but notice how Paul describes himself in verse, uh, early in verse 8. He says to Timothy, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, 
his prisoner. What an interesting phrase. Paul is saying that I'm not only an apostle of Christ Jesus, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus. Odd language to use, right? Because you might say and point to, 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 to Paul's own chains and say those chains belong to Caesar. You're Caesar's prisoner. You're there on the, you're Rome's prisoner. What is this Christ's prisoner? Paul is emphasizing here that he is in his situation, in his chains, suffering, not because Rome had, was able to conquer and prevent the gospel from spreading and, and keep Paul from, from proclaiming the gospel. Paul is there by, um, by decree of Jesus Christ. Paul is there not because Christ's cause is being hindered, but Christ has Paul there as his prisoner. Paul, Paul's there for a purpose. And his chains weren't a message of saying the gospel is wrong. The chains he was claiming to Timothy was to show that the gospel indeed is right. In the death of Christ, we live. In these chains, the word of God is not bound. In our weakness, we are strong. This is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so Paul becomes a touchstone of the gospel, but Paul specifically as Christ's prisoner. um, Phygelus and Hermogenes rub themselves against Paul's chains and flee, right? They flee. They want nothing of the sort. They don't want to suffer for the gospel. But Onesiphorus hears of Paul's chains and rather than running, is commended because he diligently searched for Paul and found him and he refreshed Paul. Likely prisoners uh, during this time weren't given meals. They were dependent upon their friends. And so Paul, even in such a desperate situation, was dependent upon a friend, Onesiphorus, to come to him. I mean, even the great Apostle Paul needed a friend, though even when he was abandoned, as we read at the end of this letter, Christ is a friend that always sticks closer than a brother, even to him in his imprisonment. And so Paul then desires that the Lord would grant to Onesiphorus to find mercy from him on the day, on the day of Christ's return. Because Paul himself had nothing to give to Onesiphorus, right? Paul didn't benefit Onesiphorus in any regard socially, right? He didn't have anything to give him. There was no advantage socially for Paul or for Onesiphorus to refresh Paul. But again, Onesiphorus didn't care because the gospel changed him and his priorities were different. And so Paul prays for the very thing I'm sure Onesiphorus desired to find mercy and grace from the Lord on the day of Christ's return, because Christ has things to give him. Christ has everything to give his people. And so Paul is saying, well, I have nothing to give you. You've refreshed me. You've loved me because the gospel um, has, has changed you. And you know that the message that I preached, yes, it's brought suffering, but it is right and it is true. And so Onesiphorus sought out Paul in his chains with his mind set upon a greater reward. We also see here how Paul then is one who is united to Christ. So to receive Paul or to reject Paul was to receive or reject Christ himself. Remember when Christ commissioned his disciples to go out, right, in pairs of two. If they receive you, they receive me. If they reject you, wipe the dust off your feet and move on. They've rejected me, right? There is this fellowship, this union between Christ and his people, even Jesus himself teaches us this when, when he called Paul, at the time Saul, to himself, right? So Paul, 
who was Saul, was persecuting the church. And Jesus meets him on the Damascus Road, encounters him, uh, blinds him with the brilliant light of his glory. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the church? Why are you persecuting believers? No, he says, why are you persecuting me? Because he identified himself with his people. Jesus earlier teaches this in this parable regarding the end of the age. He says that the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when, when, and when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. That's the fellowship that we have with Christ, the union. What is done to his people is done to him. And so too, even the author to the letter of, to the Hebrews reminds the church to visit those in prison. Now, it's not just a general exhortation that we should be making prison visits all the time, but specifically to visit believers who have been cast into prison. Even as Onesiphorus is visiting Paul, right? Not to be ashamed of their chains, not to be ashamed of them. Because not only was Paul of no use to give them anything positive within the culture to maintain their influence, their power, their position, but in fact, Paul subtracted and detracted from their positions to identify themselves with a suffering man, a man in chains. But again, Onesiphorus went there, not because the gospel was right for him. It worked. It didn't work necessarily if you on an earthly measurement, but it was right. It was true. And Onesiphorus then sought out Paul. And so chains become a kind of touchstone for the gospel. Have we believed and received the true gospel? Well, what is our um, perspective and response to suffering for the gospel? If it's to flee, it means we've misunderstood that message. And we've received it simply as something that was useful for a time. But if, if suffering comes and we hold fast and we seek it out to hold fast to those um, who believe that message, well then, it shows that the gospel has been received by us because it is true, because it is right, because it is about the Savior of the world, Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul holds these examples, these touchstones before Timothy. Secondly, one thing about the toughness of the gospel, right? Because as he holds these examples before Timothy, he then in chapter 2 says, uh, and, and begins speaking directly to Timothy, right? The toughness of the gospel. You then, my child, right? In light of these things, be strengthened, be empowered, become strong by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Right, so Paul is calling Timothy to gospel toughness, gospel strength. And this strength is not found in Timothy, but must be given to him by the grace of God that is in Christ Jesus. And just to summarize this point, what Paul is encouraging Timothy to do is to be strengthened in his union with Jesus Christ. When you believe in Jesus, it's not just a matter of consenting to something, but entrusting yourself to someone. 
And when you entrust yourself to Jesus Christ, you are then united to him, bonded to him in faith by the power of his spirit. And in union with Christ, you are then strengthened. The strength to live the Christian life is not found in ourselves or in this world, but in Christ Jesus. And so Paul is reminding Timothy, don't just live by biographies, right? Hearing these men of Phagellus and Hermogenes as negative examples or Onesiphorus as a positive, right? They're meant to inspire you, but ultimately live by faith in Jesus Christ. Become strong in him. And Timothy is, is to do this every day. Paul is saying, not just become strong at one moment and then live off of what you've obtained, but he says, become strong, be strengthened day after day. Every day, seek the strength that comes from Jesus Christ in the grace that is found in him. One commentator had said that the entirety of the Christian life is lived in and by God's favor and enabling power, which come through the believer's union with Christ. The believer has the responsibility to walk in that grace, but Christian faith and faithfulness are holy gifts from God. And so, as we are united to a living Savior who loves us and knows us, we, we receive grace from him by the very means of grace that he has given to us in the preaching of his word, to hear him speak to us Sunday after Sunday in the preached word. To, to, to be strengthened by the sacraments as they sign and seal to us the promise of Christ. As we are reminded time after time, the substance of baptism is Christ. And the substance of the Lord's Supper, as we're going to have after the service, is Christ. And Stephen's baptism, it's not just a matter of water, but it's a matter of the blood of Christ signed and sealed by that water. It is a means of grace to witness a baptism. To remember our baptisms, as the Westminster Confession puts it, to improve on our baptism. And also prayer. The word of God as it is in our lives everywhere, filling ourselves with his word. That we might then respond in praise and prayer and thanksgiving. Because the word and the sacraments and prayer are the means that God has given us. That we might be strengthened in Christ Jesus our Lord. But notice for what Timothy is to be strengthened. Right, it's interesting because you might be, be strong in the Lord and here is this course of action you must endure and take. And this is how you're going to prosper in this way. But no, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. We'll get back to that. Share in suffering as a good so- soldier of Christ Jesus, right? So gospel toughness, right? Being strengthened in the, by the grace that is in Christ Jesus is that Timothy might share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. It's through that, surprisingly, ironically, that the gospel prospers. It was the early church, uh, one of your early church fathers, uh, Irenaeus or Tertullian, you got to, maybe Kelvin, could, I mean, he's not here, right? But we'll ask Kelvin, um, said that the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And where they were cut down and killed, that's where the church thrived and grew. And so too, Paul is saying, be strengthened by the grace, share in suffering, and in that the gospel goes forth and advances. That's the kind of gospel toughness that we are called to. 
Not only that, but we see thirdly the transfer of the gospel. We had just read these verses that what Timothy heard from Paul, the apostolic message, he was then to in turn entrust that to faithful men. As we said earlier, the church does not invent the news, the good news, generation after generation, but within the church we preserve the gospel as it's been handed down. It's why we refer to the church as apostolic. Not because the office of the apostle continues. There are no modern day apostles. The apostles throughout the scriptures specifically had to have seen the risen Lord and they were then entrusted by him to a unique calling that ended when the apostles died. But the message of the apostles they preached 2,000 years ago has been entrusted to faithful men and continues down to our own day. The church preserves the good news. It preserves this message. And it reminds a world that is always changing in its opinions of what is true and what is false, what is good, what is right, uh, wrong, or bad. In that world, we remind the church, we remind the world that the truth that we have does not change. We may proclaim it and herald it in different ways in different time periods, using different ways to, um, to meet people, right? Paul says, to the Jew, I became a Jew. To the Greek, I became a Greek, right? There is something to that, but the truth, the, the substance does not change. That's why we have our creeds and our confessions reminding us of these very things. But when we think about the church having the gospel transferred, right, from generation to generation, the gospel transferred, um, we also, and, and the church preserving it, we ought not to think of that preservation as a kind of, as you might preserve a museum piece, right? Something that's just pretty to look at and we just really think that's nice. No, the gospel is preserved, but it's also a power. And as that gospel is preserved as we proclaim it, right? When the gospel is not active and it's not doing things, then it dies out in, in that congregation in life. But the gospel as it is received properly and preserved properly is a power that goes out. And so, too, we see the effects of the gospel among us as the church is built, not only by numbers, but also as the church is built in maturity and as unbelievers are brought in to believe in Jesus Christ. So that is the transfer of the gospel. There's a host of implications of this. I think one of the implications is for us to be supportive of seminaries, faithful seminaries that train men to preach Christ and to proclaim the gospel. Right? We have an obligation uh, to send men, as we look to do, Lord willing, even next year potentially, to send men to be trained in this gospel and then to go out to proclaim that message. You know, everybody loves Calvin's Geneva, but Calvin's Geneva was a training hub. Men came from all over to learn, and then they were sent out into the, into the world, and many of them to die. There's a moving letter. I wish I had brought it with me. Um, maybe I'll, I'll find it and email it out. But there's a moving letter where Calvin had trained these four young men. And they went back to France where they were, they were to be persecuted. And they were now soon to die. They were, they were awaiting death. And Calvin writes them this letter to hold fast. And Cal, right, This is what Geneva was doing. It's like we look at it like here's a political idea. No, it was gospel-centered. And it was sending out men to preach the gospel. Um, and that's what we ought to do with our seminaries. We're thankful for faithful seminaries, Mid-America Reform Seminary, Westminster Theological Seminary, Puritan Theological Seminary, Reform Theological... There's plenty of good schools. We're thankful for them. May God continue to keep those, churches, uh, those seminaries. 
as men are trained for gospel ministry to proclaim Christ. And finally, one last point to think about, the telos of the gospel, right? So as Paul called Timothy Timothy to this, be strengthened, share in suffering as a good soldier, he then gives him some encouragement as he reminds them him of these three different occupations, each of which have a goal in mind, a telos, right? So, Verse 4, well, those, the, a soldier, an athlete, and a hardworking farmer. He says, no soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him, right? A soldier embodies single-mindedness, devotion to a cause that has been given to him from above, right? He's not about himself, but he's devoted to his commander, the one who has commissioned him and given him a, a, a goal, And so too, Timothy is to be a soldier. And so too, you, to be a soldier of Christ Jesus, single-minded in the pursuit of what Christ has put before you. And that means your various callings, your various occupations, your callings in the church, your callings in the home, your callings in the world. All of those things you pursue with singular-mindedness to glorify Jesus Christ as a good soldier, Your aim is not to please yourself or get entangled in civilian pursuits, things that distract you from the cause, but rather to please the one who enlisted you, who is Jesus Christ, your King, your Lord. Not only the soldier, but the athlete as well. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. The crown of the athlete, the reward that he's running for and striving for and straining his body for, holds before a reward. And, and to get to that reward is not a matter of doing it any which way he desires, right? There are obligations placed upon him from above. He, he submits himself for the sake of the crown. And so to Timothy is to submit himself for the, sake of the, for the sake of the reward that Christ gives to his people. Remember before, Onesiphorus couldn't receive anything from Paul, but he could from the Lord. And so to Timothy, right? Timothy Paul is Timothy's father in the faith, but he had nothing of, a, of an earthly inheritance to give him. And yet, Paul holds before him the glory of the crown that Christ gives to his people. And finally, the hardworking farmer. And I love the description, the hardworking farmer. I've, I've had the privilege of being in farming communities here and there. I'm from New York, as most of you know. But in uh, opportunities to serve the churches, I've been in North Carolina, Iowa, the Midwest, uh, and indeed, hardworking farmers are inspiring men, and some ladies are doing the farming as well. And I, I do one quick little story. Um, you know, the farmer glories in his calloused hands. Um, you, you feel his hands, and they're rough. And now, I don't do farming, uh, but I like to go to the gym. At least I used to a lot more than I do right now. Um, and you, you grab the weights, right? They're, they're, uh, they're, they're rough, and so it ends up ripping up your hands. And so I've got a bunch of calluses on my hands here. And so I was with a bunch of farmers, and we were sitting at table, and we had coffee, and they noticed my hands, and they're like, and they didn't know I was a pastor at the time. They're like, what kind of work do you do? And I'm like, well, you're going to be disappointed. Um, I don't, you know, and, and so in their minds, going to the gym is uh, not real tough. Um, it's, the, it's the hard farmer, which I, I would probably agree. But the hardworking farmer, the calloused hand farmer, the one who is up early, the one who is to bed late, the one who is working around the clock. Paul is saying the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops, right? So like the soldier who 
is given orders from above, like the athlete who has rules given from above, so to the farmer can't just harvest his crops any which way he desires. He can't just plant whenever he wants. He can't just um, treat the plants however he wants. There's a certain order to things, but it's all for the sake of receiving the first fruits of the harvest, right? Like the soldier who pleases his commander, like the athlete who is crowned. So the farmer looks to the telos of the harvest, receiving the first share of the crops. And all of these examples are given to Timothy and to you to encourage you then, because then Paul concludes by saying, think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Let these metaphors, let these pictures move you and think about it. Now, you can also, if you want to reflect on this during the afternoon, you know, think about examples Paul doesn't give. Right? The kind of people that Paul points to are the soldier, the athlete, the farmer. But there's many occupations that Paul would avoid. Think about those things, but also think about then with these positive things, uh, these, the soldier, the athlete, and the hardworking farmer, how they may inspire you to continue in the gospel and to hold fast to it, not because it's right for you and it works for you, but because it is right. Think over these things, brothers and sisters, and may we as a congregation then hold fast to the gospel, the message that he has risen, that has been passed down for centuries now, brought to us and to all faithful churches. May we preserve that as the power of the gospel goes out throughout this city, changing us and changing those who are in darkness, bringing them into light. That Christ, our King, our Master, our Commander, might be pleased by us. And on that day of his return, say, well done, good and faithful servant. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the church of Jesus Christ that you have established her, founded upon the word of the apostles and prophets as they proclaim the word of Christ. Father, we thank you that the message we believe is not a message we believe because it works but for us, but because it is indeed the truth. Help us to see that. Help us to live accordingly. And may the truth have its, its way, its, its effect upon us, even as it brings us into union with Jesus Christ, the living Savior who knows us, who loves us. And may we desire his glory above all else as we seek, as we seek him in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.